Hey everyone, it's Rachel with a quick announcement before we get to your podcast episode today. Our 2023 Local Motive Tour is kicking off on September 14th, and I really don't want you guys to miss it. Here's a quote from a Local Motive attendee, Richard. He says, I did the Local Motive Tour a couple years ago and found I was using the ideas from all of the stops when I would have conversations about our community. Strong Towns does a good job putting these together, and they involve people who are dedicated and skilled and who live in all parts of the country. Thanks, Richard, for that feedback. Hopefully that's a little extra to convince you if you're on the fence about joining us. These events take place every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central from September 14th through November 2nd. You'll get an hour of educational workshop featuring a Strong Town speaker plus a guest speaker. And of course, afterwards, you'll get access to the recording and a bunch of resources. Plus, you can join us for our new feature this year, the after party on Fridays with my colleague Norm, where you can keep chatting about the topic discussed at that week's session. So you definitely want to get your ticket now because the first session, which is called is this development worthwhile? Let's do the math. It is going to feature Chuck and Joe Minicosi of Urban 3. And I can already tell you that it is currently our most popular stop from the number of people that have signed up. So I'm thinking others probably don't want to miss out on that one either. A couple of other highlights. We've got a session called Four Freeway Fighting Tactics featuring two advocates, Ali Smither and Susan Graham. They've been fighting against the I-45 project in Houston and Chuck Marone will join them. Another session is called The Small Steps That Can Make a Big Impact on Your Transit System. And it features transit expert Jerome Horn, plus our staff writer and I believe self-described transit nerd, Asha Mielasko. And it's not all about, you know, math and transportation and these more hard subjects. We've also got a session, probably one of the ones I'm most excited about, which is called How to Host a Neighborhood Walk. This is going to be led by my colleague, John, and a bright young Strong Towns leader, Jacob, who's been running these really powerful community walks to get to know neighbors and understand issues in his city. So that's probably enough of me blabbing. Important point is get your ticket now at strongtowns.org slash local motive. All right, let's get to your podcast episode. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was on a bit of a vacation last month. And as I was out, you know, I try to stay away from the news. I try not to to wreck my family's time with me by following too closely, but it, it was hard not to see. It was hard not to watch what was going on in Maui and the destruction of a major part of this beautiful island, this kind of paradise that uh, I've been fortunate enough to visit Hawaii and been amazed by the beauty. As I'm looking at this, it occurs to me that there's a standard playbook for places going through distress like this. There's a standard playbook for how we, in a sense, assist from the top down places that have gone through destruction like this. It's different than what I have seen work and what I have talk to people about that have been there and experienced this. And so when I got back, the, one of the first things I did is ask my friend Steve Mozan if he would be willing to come on 
and chat a little bit about some of his experiences. Uh, you may know Steve, he's been on the podcast a few times. He's the author of The Original Green, amongst other things, but The Original Green is the book that I quote most often. It's one of my top five Strong Towns books, so you have to read it. Steve's on our advisory board, and he's just a good friend. So Steve, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate that. It's always always a pleasure, and I always learn a lot uh, visiting with you for an hour. <laughs> well, you and I did not coordinate this, but we're both, for those that are seeing the video, we're both wearing white today, and you're like a customary wearing black guy. So I got on here, and we're like, we're like twinsies all of a sudden. It's what you do in the summer in a place where it's hot, and I'm in Tuscaloosa, and it's been uh, close to 100 for weeks on end, and so... Uh, yeah, you stay cooler if you want to go out for a walk this way than in all black like I would in the wintertime. Well, you look good, man. Thank you, man. There's three kind of different things I want to hit on. And I just want to tee you up and let you talk a little bit about this. One of the earliest things that I came across you doing that really struck me as profound was some of the work you did. And I believe it was in Haiti after a hurricane had struck in Haiti. And some of this involved, you know, helping teach people building codes, and some of it involved putting together new living units. I know there were a lot of people involved in this, but you were one. Can can you talk just a little bit about the experience in Haiti and maybe um, some of the lessons? And I'll I'll interrupt you with some questions as we go. But can you just start there because I feel like there's a lot of profound things that happened in your work in Haiti. I was not one of the ones on the ground there. I was I was involved from afar in Andres Duane and the Princess Foundation was involved. They they were the there were a few people on the ground, but I was not one of them. Now there was also a recovery effort from uh, economic recovery where, where the place was just uh, just in, incredibly poor. That was in Jamaica that I was involved also with the Princess Foundation and with. Uh, I might be getting these two mixed up because I know the Jamaica one's the one where you. Uh, Help them write the codes into song on the yes. walls and stuff, right? But yeah. actually, the, the children did that. What actually happened was <laughs> was that, uh, you know, in, in this place, it's called Rosetown. It's right next to Trenchtown, which is more famous because of, of uh, songs of a different nature. But uh, in Rosetown, this was a community of several thousand people that they had literally civil war back in the 60s. And in their case... The red party was in the north and the blue party. I'm not making this up, but, but that's their adopted colors. The blue party was in the south. And the the uh, the fighting was so so fierce that the government just bulldozed out the heart of the neighborhood. And, wow. and uh, so it's kind of no man's land. And so now King Charles, when he was prince, came to uh, to see the place. He said, we absolutely must do something to help this place recover. And, and so... That's how that that shred came about. Well, there were actually two shreds. Uh, the first one, Andres was involved with. The second was just straight up Princess Foundation. But anyhow, on the uh, the second one, uh, Mike Watkins was the one leading that uh, that shred. In that one, uh, and Hank Dittmar was the one that was involved in Haiti with uh, with Andres. But anyhow, so the the second one, my my job was coding the recovery of the architecture because what had happened was it is that. If you go back a hundred years and you look at the grandparents or great grandparents of the people living there now in abject poverty, what their great grandparents, grandparents or great grandparents built was perfectly competent 
a tropical architecture uh, following ancient patterns and all this. And the people that were living there when we came were were literally, most of them were living out under the sky. They had no roof over their heads. What they would do is they would, they would scavenge roof panels that had been blown out, corrugated metal, and they would they would first of all make a perimeter around their little piece of nobody owned anything. The government did not allow people to buy a place, you know, so they were just simply camping out on the ground, but without a, a roof over the heads. And so we were trying to 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 reinfuse the place with the with what their grandparents and great grandparents knew about how you best live in a tropical climate that has heat and humidity and hurricanes. And and so I spent most of the week uh, sitting there and trying to concoct the code. But then it occurred to me, you know, this place has, there are three flush toilets in the entire neighborhood. Everything else is is open latrines. And I'm from the deep South. I'm from Alabama originally. And when I was a teenager growing up, a lot of my mother's family in Kentucky and a lot of Wanda's family in North Alabama did not yet have running water in in their houses. And so they would have outhouses, for example. And when people were were poor like that, I knew what happened to the Sears catalog. You know, nobody bought TP. It was right. Sears catalog. Uh, <laughs> it's what they use. I, you know? I grew up on a farm in a poor place and we had an outhouse as well. Now we we did have running water by the time we bought the farmhouse and moved in, but I know exactly what you mean when you say that. Yeah. So so it occurred to me that as soon as I realized that it it, it instantly occurred to me that a written code, even if only 20, 30 pages, every copy would be gone in less than a week. Yeah, you know, it's going to get be used it's gonna for necessary get, things, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's more urgent things. <laughs> right, exactly. And and so what I did was is that because I've been noticing all through uh, the neighborhood that on these uh, scavenged corrugated metal walls or barricades around a piece of land where the people slept, they would even even in abject poverty where you know these people are hungry poor, not just economically disadvantaged, but even in spite of that they would. They would go around and and paint. This was not graffiti. This was carefully hand lettered. They would paint proverbs on the wall. In some cases, it was literally biblical proverbs. In other cases, it was just advice on how to to live a better life. Uh, you know, many things like that. And I thought, well, I should do what the people do and turn all of these code items into proverbs. Each one of them. And then we'll begin to write them on the walls like the people do. You know, that that's, right. the, that's the local vernacular. To share wisdom. Yeah. Exactly. And and so on the uh, the last day of the charrette, there was uh, one woman on the team from, uh, I think, London, somewhere in the UK. And uh, so anyhow, and she had a good hand at painting. She took one of the one of the proverbs, which said to plant your yard with things you can eat for why why should your yard live fallow while you spend more of your money at the grocery store? You know, great, why, why great shouldn't advice. you raise more food? And, and instead of spending every last penny, it, it uh, you know, buying groceries. And so she got that painted on the wall by the end of the day. And then we had the final presentation. It was in an abandoned house that 
Prince Charles had had bought and made it the neighborhood library. And so that was a part of the redevelopment of the place. We had the, you know, the final presentation. At the end, the people were sitting around visiting and, and one young architect from from Kingston, not in that neighborhood, but he was uh, another part of Kingston, but he was he was heavily involved in the project. He came to me and grabbed me by the elbow and he said, Steve, come here. You got You got to see this. I said, what is it? He said, just follow me. So I followed him out into the, the night and I could hear them. It was the voices of little children singing. They were taking those words on the wall that were never meant to have rhythm or rhyme and they were turning them into a song. Now, we can't do that. All we can do is set the stage for things like that to happen where people pick up something and make it their own. That was a huge lesson being in. It's beautiful. It has to be something that that should be a key to, to recovery of any place from whatever the disaster is. How do you help the people make it their own? So I want to poke a little bit at original green wisdom in this story, because you, you described people who were living open air, like under the stars, despite the fact that they're, ancestors, right? Let me say it this way, same geography, same place, same culture, same people, but just I'll say a different economic system or a different time or a different kind of governmental surroundings. We're living a much lower standard of living despite our affluence, despite our technology, despite our capacity. You're describing something that feels like a natural disaster but as you described it, you know, the, the red and the blue and the warring factions and all that. Was this a byproduct of that dispute or was this a byproduct of just modernity kicking a certain group of people to the curb? What was the actual kind of underlying, you think, you know, cause of this distress? I know just enough about it to be dangerous. And and yeah. so probably anything I would tell you would not be entirely accurate. But my perception was that and I don't even know what year it happened. I know in, in uh, the Bahamas, it was 1973, I believe. But I don't know what year that Jamaica gained their actual independence. There, it seemed like there was inherent instability resulting from the fact that that what had been the kind of the, the, the governmental rock that, for better or for worse, was that the authorities were now gone. And and so it was it was not like, uh, the people had a, you know, a ten-year period of time, or 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 twenty years, or whatever, to to kind of ease into this. It, it was just my understanding, and it could be everything I'm saying is suspect. Okay, sure. Uh, okay. But from, okay. What I, from what I can tell, that it just was a an unsteadiness in that era that led to some difficult circumstances for uh, for some time, and it was. When all the authorities pick up and leave, including the authorities about how to build, you right. know, uh, right. there, there's no colonial powers anymore, then, um, you know, there's a great loss of wisdom. I know that, for example, if if you talk to San Antonio, he will he will tell you, but he's from the Philippines originally. And uh, he would talk about how the original colonial power there, the people didn't even learn the language, you know, during all those years. It was, it was sort of like, well, only the overlords have the language. You know, and then the people don't. And so it's easy to see how a lot of wisdom about how to do things well would be lost 
in Jamaica, that didn't happen, you know, because uh, uh, everyone there that I met anyway speaks English. And, and, and so that, that was, it's not the same story, but there are similarities when the colonials pull out and leave the people. And, and so it, it, it was very it, much it a felt, loss of wisdom. Let me restate what you just said. And I mean, reading your work, I feel like one of the deepest insights that you have in the original green and kind of everything that's flowed out of that is that, you know, if we went to a place like Jamaica, we go to a place like the Bahamas, we go to a place like Haiti, we go to a place like Minnesota, where I'm at, there's a certain cultural wisdom that resides by the nature of people having lived there and survived there. And, and in a sense, inherited from the school of hard knocks, maybe is what we'd say in present, but inherited a certain wisdom that just comes from, you know, time and experience. And one of the things that I picked up on from, you know, hearing that that story of Jamaica earlier was that a lot of that kind of localized wisdom had maybe been, in a sense, replaced with, if we want to say colonial wisdom or, you know, modern wisdom, or here's like a better way to do things. And the reality is that you, when you went in there and and, and some of the teams that had been working in places like Haiti actually tried to get back to what actually works in a place like this, because the kind of homes you would build in Jamaica are going to be different in significant ways than the homes you would build in Tuscaloosa and the homes you would build in Minnesota and the homes you would build in other places, simply because that is what's required to actually thrive there. There were two just absolutely iconic sides to that story. And, and one is when we went to the neighboring neighborhood which was uh, Trenchtown of Bob Marley fame. And we went into the, uh, it was a compound that I think his grandparents had built, or maybe great-grandparents, I'm not sure. But anyhow, that within this compound, which was a perfectly competent masonry tropical building or set of buildings with a courtyard in the middle, within the courtyard, they had built uh, in more recent times a shed to shelter Marley's iconic uh, VW bus in which he had uh, a tour, apparently. And, yeah. But the shed, the competence with which that shed had been built just paled in comparison. It looked like uh, something completely rustic compared to what his grandparents had built, sitting side by side. I could almost touch both the, the corner post of the shed and also the, the surrounding building uh, at the same time. I mean, they, they, they were just that close together. It was a shockingly strong indicator. The other thing was that the government had come in right beside Rosetown, had bulldozed a bunch of the shantytown, and had built a, a modern low-income housing development, and which was perfectly decent uh, in terms of, I mean, it, it wasn't like hideously ugly like some of the stuff that we would do in the U.S. or, or, or whatever, but in the three or four years that it had been uh, before the charrette from, from when it was built, not one single family from the neighborhood moved into this place that had running water and had toilets and all this kind of thing, had showers, because it was it was completely foreign. And when the people were sold or, or attempted to be sold on on all of the modern ways of doing things, which has more to do, has less to do with what you do for yourself and more to do with what the government can do for you or, or to you, as, as the case may be, or that 
that the industrial development complex can, can wants to sell you things. It just was was not something that was. I'm going to say it wasn't embraced. It was totally rejected. You know, and yeah. and I've never seen two stronger indicators of of uh, the current at that time state of affairs is those two buildings. Let's go to Katrina. I want to say Katrina was 2003, wasn't it? Uh, it was, uh, it was um, 05, actually. Was it ago. really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, 2005. I, I remember watching this develop and thinking the odds of a hurricane in any given year, a Category 5 striking New Orleans is pretty remote. But the odds of it happening in one of our lifetimes is very high. You know, it's right. it's one of these things that statistically is is kind of inevitable. And it occurred to me, and I, I feel like this was reinforced later with what happened, was that there's got to be, in a sense, received wisdom on how to deal with and recover from a situation like this. But that modern building, in a sense, like post-war building in a place like New Orleans would handle that in a completely different way, a, a way that, you know, would stress, you know, more padding and armor and thickness and brute strength as opposed to a, a, a kind of adaptable resilience. Yeah. One building in New Orleans that, w- that was that striking to me as well there. Yeah. And it's a historic building from, I don't know, close to 200 years ago. I think it was early 19th century I believe uh, it's called the Pitot House, P-I-T-O-T. It was up near Lake Pontchartrain. It was not uh, anywhere near the French Quarter or anything. What happened there is it was built the old way, which is you build your first floor walls of masonry and you stucco them. And then you build the second floor with wood structure. And so what happened when when the hurricane was on the way, they didn't know what was going to happen at that time. They didn't know the levees would break or anything. It was kind of out of people's minds, I, I guess. But right. They simply took all the furniture from the first floor, moved it up to the second floor. Mm-hmm. Okay. The levees mm-hmm. did break. The place flooded up to the bottom of the second floor structure almost, as it did with, with uh, buildings all around. And all the, the wood frame newer buildings that had, had not been built the old ways, they all had to be bulldozed because they were, they were filled with mold and mildew. And the wood was rotten and all this. And, and so, it just, I mean, they were, they were total losses. They were some of the quarter of a million houses, roughly, that were lost in uh, in the New Orleans metro area uh, with uh, with Katrina. And with uh, the Pateau House, they simply went in there, hosed out the walls and the floor of the, of the first floor, brought all the furniture back down, and they were good. Yeah. You know, it, it yeah. just was a shocking difference in what the old wisdom will do for you and what the new the new products, if we buy a product from the industrial development complex, whether that product be a, a house or a whatever, a piece of a house or whatever it is, you know, that's just something that you buy. And, you know, th- this term about a smart dwelling or a, a smart this and smart that is all what is meant to be is allow the humans to be dumb. You know, you don't have to think you you don't right. need any system. <laughs> Uh, yeah. of how to do things well if you buy supposedly smart stuff. But if if the smartness is all having to do with just the the delivery process and not the real needs of humanity then in tough situations, then um, it may be smart in that sense, but it's certainly not strong. Or adaptable, right? Yeah. Exactly. I'm interested from you in the response to Katrina, 
this was 18 years ago. Yes. I'm guessing that there are plenty of people in our audience who don't have the vivid recollections of Katrina that that you and I do. I remember watching this horror kind of unfold slowly in front of us. A hurricane come in and then the levees and dikes breaking and then this mass of humanity fleeing to, you know, a domed stadium in the in the middle of the city and nobody going to help them. I remember feeling just this helplessness. There was a response though. I think you experienced the good and the bad about the response. And maybe we should start with the critical part. Can you talk a little bit about what about the response didn't work? And then I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the lessons and, and things that we did see working there. Yeah, well, the part of the response that that didn't work, and it's what happens so very often on, uh, you know, in a disaster-prone place uh, like the Gulf Coast, and, and that is that there are a certain number of locals that, that that always are going to say, well, we'll just write it out. We did it before. We can do it again. And there should never have been anywhere near that number of people in the Superdome. They should have left town. And so, as a matter of fact, I, I've got uh, family friends that were on some of the crews. I was in Miami at the time, of course, that were on some of the crews that were cutting their way to the coast. And yeah. when you started in Jackson uh, with chainsaws, and you're trying to cut your way to New Orleans. It took them basically a week to get there because, uh, you know, you got to every down tree across the road. You know, that's just the beginning of your troubles. And so had there been a lot fewer people there where you could just airlift some things in, that would have been one thing. But it was just the sheer volume that was a huge issue of, of what did not work. That was the number one key of all things is, is uh, just simply the fact that the people themselves should have. You know, the mayor said, he said, you know, this is the one we have long feared. There were just way too many people that were that, that didn't heed the warning and, and leave town. When when course, you know, there's always people like in in hospitals and stuff that have physical problems, uh, health problems that they can't just pick up and leave. They can't just jump in a car. A lot of them didn't have a car. So it's not like everybody made that choice. Some people had no choice. Right, right. When FEMA came in. You know, you you have the enduring kind of meme of you know, hey, good job, Brownie, and you know the the critique of George W. Bush and the response. I think it's fair to say, you know, in eighteen year hindsight, that this was not a proud moment for the emergency management people. This is a, almost a case study. It feels like in poor response. Feel free to disagree with that. I mean, I think you are closer to it than me. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about what was done for shelter for people, because yeah. I I know some of the emergency response stuff was delayed and haphazard and not well executed, but when it ultimately came into place, some of the early stuff was really, my recollection is that a lot of this was very toxic and it took people intervening in a different way to move it to something else. Can you talk about those early oh, yeah. shelter and recovery efforts? Yes, exactly. As a matter of fact, on the um, the Friday after the hurricane, I went over to DPZ. At that time, there was a group in Baton Rouge that said, we can house a lot of people here fairly quickly. Will you come and help us with that? And and so I said, well, that's way too big for me. Let me go over and talk to Andres. And so he 
when I presented the idea to him, he said, well, let's call up the CEO of, of the Congress for the Urbanism and get the CNU involved. And it turned out that within uh, six weeks uh, of the hurricane, we had actually assembled the, the largest planning event probably in human history. There were almost 200 professionals in the rooms where the, the charrette was hold, uh, held, uh, or as it was called, the Mississippi Renewal Forum. And, and so that was a good thing. Then the next day after that Friday, I came back to DPZ, and, and that's when Andres said, he said, you know, Steve, 13 years ago was Andrew, and at that time, FEMA brought some trailers in for people to live in as very temporary housing, and he said, there are kids that begin kindergarten in that FEMA trailer and graduated from high school still living in that FEMA trailer. In the New Orleans area, the, the local building community had he had built only uh, about a thousand houses a year for for the last two three decades, something like that. But with two hundred and fifty thousand houses lost, then it would take two hundred and fifty years at that rate to rebuild what had been lost. And so he said, you know, we got to find some way that we can rebuild in a number of ways, not just conventional construction. You know, we need every method in play. We need we need manufactured housing, we need modular housing, we need panelized housing, and we need conventional construction to have any chance of, of doing any good in our lifetimes. But he also said, your, your number one job in this that I'd really like you to take on is, it is the most important thing. He said, right now, we don't have any idea what FEMA is planning to bring in this time. It could be something totally different. You need to do all the research you can to find out what it is and to see how much you're spending and to see if we can do better. And so that's where that Saturday was, was where the, uh, the original idea of the, um, of the Katrina cottages came from as a replacement for FEMA trailers. So we conceived of that on that day is emergency housing with dignity because the FEMA trailers had none, you know? And, yeah. and so that was a part of the thing of how can you, how can you help your place recover feeling like you're actually human and not just a cog in a machine. You see what I mean? No, I totally see. Talk a little bit about what is unique about a Katrina cottage as opposed to your standard FEMA trailer. You know, we had several ideas in mind about that. And one of them was, is uh, that it should be something that would let you get the, the tiniest bit of foothold, kind of a beachhead, if you want to use a military term, on your land again in Mississippi and in Louisiana, there, there were there was a lot of gallows humor, things like I'm a proud slab owner in past Christiana or whatever, you know, because that's all that was left <laughs> slab. Right. You know, I love but, people. So, I really, I really do. You know. <laughs> yeah. You gotta have fun with something even in the direst of circumstances. And and they were certainly doing that. And and these were people living in tents months after the storm, you know, so they, they didn't even have anything hard. They had they had canvas all around them and that was it but so the idea was is how can you build something incredibly small you know nowhere like what had been lost you know even a shotgun house in new orleans was was like three or four times the size of a katrina cottage but the idea being is how can you gain this foothold where you and your family can get back onto because you're paying more a mortgage payment on a house that doesn't exist anymore and it was taking you know a year year and a half two years for the insurance companies to get in and actually reach settlements. I remember one sign that a, a slab owner had put up, I think it was either Waveland or Past Christian, one of the two. And he said on the sign, Katrina, 
work of God in insurance companies, he named one of them, but anyhow, the work of the devil. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, so if, if you can get a tiny foothold on your land again, and then if the cottage is smart enough that that it has obvious ways to expand, you know, ideally what would happen is it would become kind of a granny cottage in the backyard or something like that, or or it, it could be a home office. It could be, you know, it could, it could do a lot of different things, you know, even though it was small. Matter of fact, the, the virtue of being very small is that it can be dedicated to, to almost innumerable things over time once you've recovered from the storm. And so that was the idea is, is to live with dignity in something incredibly small that then can expand into what would serve you well in the long run, you know, tight quarters in the beginning. Think of it like, like going camping, you know, a little camper trailer or something like that. Uh, we lived in a camper trailer for over a year as we were finishing our house that, that we built back in the 80s. And the funny thing is, we had actually borrowed that camper trailer from Wanda's family and gone on an anniversary weekend trip, and it was a romantic getaway. Right, but right. But a year and a half in it, it was no longer romantic. Less, <laughs> less, a little bit less romantic, yeah. So at some point, you've got you to start... Uh, occupying more of the land, but uh, but at least if you can get that foothold, that was a real key. And a foothold with dignity, that, that was a key in the beginning. I feel like there's also something about economics here. I remember Andres giving a talk that I heard, and and this is, you know, me and the transition from engineer and planner to Strong Towns advocate. I was tuning in and asking a lot of questions, and I remember his talk it wounded me a little bit because he talked about the recovery and he actually said this, he goes, the FEMA assumes that everybody in New Orleans wants to live like they're from Minnesota. And he actually used Minnesota as an example. <laughs> I think he used it as like, you know, upright, very serious nine to five. And he actually described that. And he said that, you know, they, they believe that everybody wants a nine to five job and everybody wants to have a mortgage and that you know, if we go in and pay them fair market value for their property, that they will then turn around and, and rebuild. And he said that that is not the culture of New Orleans. And then he did this discussion about New Orleans culture, and he said, "How do you how do you think you come up with these exotic foods?" He said, "It's because you spend fourteen hours a day cooking exotic foods." You know, how do you think you come up with beautiful jazz music? It's because you spend a lot of time doing it. And he described the culture of New Orleans as being a culture of leisure. That struck me as profound because we celebrate New Orleans as this unique place. And I think one of the things that that people feared would be lost was this unique New Orleans culture because the FEMA approach was, well, you've got a, you know, an old house in New Orleans, it's worth $60,000. We'll come in and be very generous and give you $70,000 for it. And then you you go rebuild your life. And when you go price what a new house constructed on your same lot would be, it's 300000 You know, making you whole, quote unquote, making you whole didn't really do anything for you. It actually required you to live a different life. Uh, you know, in Andre's terms, the life of a Minnesotan you know, go out and build a $300,000 house now and have a 30-year mortgage and have a nine-to-five job. And that was not, let's just say, native to that place in an authentic way. Have I lost something here? Am I understanding no, no, you, correctly? 
you are that 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 is a very accurate reporting of of uh, uh, of what he said. Actually, I've heard him uh, say that many times, and and I'm convinced that he's exactly correct. I'll, and, and there's something here I'm going to throw in that if you want to talk about it on on another podcast someday, I, I'm going to do a very quick summary of it. But uh, Wanda and I have been working with Elsie uh, Clemens. Artist formerly known as Laura, who is a yeah. disaster recovery expert, and and on several things that that began with actually began several years ago, the Dorian hurricane, which actually was a tornado that 220 mile an hour winds sat on Marsh Harbor for two days. I mean, it's it's a, a storm unprecedented in modern history. It's just like it was unthinkable. We've been thinking through a whole lot of things about disaster recovery. But that also applies to sprawl recovery, also applies to recovery from serious disinvestment. It also applies to the recovery of community of people that leaving one place because of climate change and that are going to some other place to try to rebuild their life again. So so a lot of the principles apply across all four types of recoveries. But in terms of in particular, the disaster recovery, when you have lost everything, you know, like the proud slab owners did, then and FEMA sees it in terms of just the recovery of infrastructure in, in buildings, and that's it. That's not it at all. That's a piece of it, but that's about a third of the equation. The other two-thirds are things that you mentioned in the last couple of minutes. One of them is, how do you begin to recover an actual economy in this place when literally all of the dollars might be washed out to sea, as in the case of Marsh Harbor, you know, there, there was just nothing left. But that's not enough either. The other third of the equation is another thing you just mentioned, and that is how do you begin to, at the earliest possible moment, begin to recover the culture of the place? You know, so like there should be one place as soon as possible, and and several phases of that, that we didn't understand any of these phases. You know, the first is just when the Red Cross tents show up, and then there's a couple of the phases, and then there's one where where the hammers show up, meaning that you're actually starting to build stuff again. And- and we're in the process of, of kind of illustrating this for the various uh, recovery types. But that really should be a whole nother topic for, for a whole nother day. But I just wanted to throw that in because you and I have never talked about that work before. This is something that that LC and Wanda and I have been uh, working on kind of quietly for the time being. Yeah. Well, if you live in a place where you have inherited your home or your home is part of a family <laughs> legacy and, and you've built up this wealth that you measure not only in the value of that structure, but in the value of the connections and the neighborhood and the culture and the people and the place, any response that comes in and puts down a trailer and walks away and and hands you a check is going to be wholly inadequate. I feel like the Katrina cottage, it's maybe not a solution that makes everything whole, but at least gives you a path to start with, as you say, dignity, and then ultimately build to something better over time. Am I being too Pollyanna with this, or is is that kind of the vision? That is is quite the vision, because yeah, anything, and unfortunately, this is the modern world we live in, where we try to, to put everything in, in terms of what is the transaction, where it's all transactional, mm-hmm. that's it. And, and you, you know, like you said, you write the check, you, you drop the you drop the dwelling and you're done if if you're FEMA. And uh, that's a bit oversimplified, but not entirely. And, and so there's just these other aspects to it 
that you're not making someone whole again just by simply writing a check and, and dropping some hard goods, you know. Can I offer one more thing? And I, I'd like your reaction to this. My wife won a journalism award a couple of years after Katrina. And the award ceremony was in New Orleans. And it had been a while since I had been. And I, I said, I, I really want to go. I haven't seen it post-Katrina. I, I really want to go and, and experience that. It was kind of fun because they had a tour there for journalists to take to tour basically the Army Corps of Engineers rebuilding of the dikes and the levees and and all the stuff. She signed me up for it. Like I, I got to go on this with a bunch of journalists. They didn't know anything about engineering, right? Like they were asking, I'll say this in all kindness, they were asking like dumb questions. And I was able to kind of get the engineer on the side and say, okay, explain to me what I'm looking at. I'm looking at this massive, and he was very proud of, you know, all this stuff and the the different systems they have been putting in place. It was tens of millions of dollars, tens of, I'm sorry, billions of dollars. It was a massive sum of money. And I looked at this and it was hard for me to not see it in terms of, you know, we're not going to spend money helping people recover or helping neighborhoods reconstitute themselves or helping people put things back together or even helping places be more resilient. I mean, we'll go back to the the Pito place you talked about at the beginning where like, can we build in a way that can withstand, you know, once every hundred years getting hit by this. Instead, we're going to build something really, really huge in, you know, kind of the false hope that this will never happen again, or if it does, we'll be more hardened against it. I felt this sense of bewilderment about it, kind of almost like loss. Like this was a, this was an unfair response for the people that were there. You know, well, and here's the thing too, and that is that, and I keep running across these pieces that I read that just gets me totally incensed. It talks about hurricane-proof construction. There is no such thing. It does not exist because here's the thing, that which we have not yet seen is greater than that which we have seen. That's just a fact of life, you know. In, in the course of a lifetime, the big things ahead are, are guaranteed because there's a lot more time ahead, not necessarily for us, but but for for existence. You know, there's a lot more time ahead than there is of what has happened so far in our lifetime. And so to have the arrogance to think that we can engineer for Katrina and that everything's going to be fine forevermore, you know, happy ever after is just, you know, that that's hubris incarnate, you know. Well, and let me add on to that. I feel like when we do that, what happens then is we forget, right? Right. Um, I go back to the kids with the stuff on the wall, you know, like 30 years from now, will we still be maintaining these massive dikes that need constant maintenance and need perpetual maintenance? Or we just assume that, you know, we've spent billions of dollars and and we forget because that's actually what happened to the dikes that failed, right? I mean, it's not that they weren't built big enough or strong enough or tall enough. It's just that we forgot about them and we didn't maintain them. You know, they call it a thousand year storm. And and then Rita shows up two weeks later, as strong as Katrina, uh, just about 100 miles to the west where there's a lot less press. Yeah. Yeah. Before we switch to Hawaii, I want to ask you about the Brad Pitt houses. I know there's been a lot of like dumping on Brad Pitt. And I really like I never go there because the, the way that I view it is he probably thought he was doing something helpful and he probably wanted to do good. 
on that same tour with the journalists, I got a I got a tour of one of the Brad Pitt houses. And again, my reaction was very different from the journalists. But you know, the the gentleman that owned the house had a picture of him and Brad Pitt, and there was a lot of um happiness and joy in the generosity that he had shown. I know those haven't worked out as intended, and it feels like there's an original green lesson in that as well. What should we think about? It's the lower eighth, right? Yeah, lower ninth, yeah. Lower ninth, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'll say this. In my opinion, I've never met Brad, but in my opinion, he had his heart in exactly the right place. But he had advisors who had architectural agendas that they were trying to push. Their interest was uh, pushing different types of architecture over the recovery of the people in the community. And matter of fact, I spent one entire afternoon with the with the person who was uh, who was head of the the entity. I forget what the uh, what the name of the entity was now. It's been too long, but that was kind of overseeing the whole Make It Right. Well, maybe it was the Make It Right Foundation, or 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 I think it was kind of a mothership, you might say. But anyhow, but I was just pleading with her to consider the wisdom of building in ways that like that help the Pateau House survive and do well with with very little impact and. But she wasn't having any of it at all. It was just like, no, we we have to do something that that is a showcase of the latest in design, and and you know, it it, it was a total loss on my part because I I did nothing to to persuade her to to consider things long proven to work or work better uh, in a storm, and and so they were trying all sorts of stuff, and one of the things was a was a company that that actually some of the new urbanists did been very interested in and also some of those on the on the uh, traditional architecture side as well of a product that infused wood with glass with the idea being that it would never rot and all this well in a perfect world that was the case in reality of course we all know what happened and, and it became just a, a a soggy rotten mess in uh, so many of those houses and and what is it the lindy principle i think it's called that that yep. you can judge the future of something by how long has persisted already that in terms of, you know, shoes have been around for what, 3000 years and uh, dating back to sandals at least. And so probably they have a long future ahead of them, you know, <laughs> but yeah, everything was about the new shiny, but I really firmly believe Brad's heart was in the right place. He just had advisors that, that advised him poorly. When I look at what has happened <laughs> in Maui, I'm going to draw on some lessons that I took from a trip to Kauai last year. I landed in Kauai expecting, naively expecting perhaps, a landscape that felt more authentically Hawaiian. I recognized and I realized that there would be resorts and that the resorts would be very Americanized. You know, I I had seen enough photos and, and known enough. I thought that the villages and the other places that were not part of that tourist machine would feel more authentically Hawaiian. And I I don't even know how to express what that what I'm trying to say there. You know, I, I'm because what I actually discovered was it was very Western and very almost like Californian in terms of its development style. I did a whole podcast on this because, you know, it's it's one thing to be in a California desert and run water into a ravine and catch it and and have it used for agriculture. It's another thing to be on a volcanic rock and have you know water running down a hillside at you every time it rains, which by the way, it does almost every day. I'm going to assume that the village 
construction practices from a hundred years ago were kind of compatible with what building on the side of a volcano, you know, on an island would look like. But that's very different than what is there today. I wonder if you just have some thoughts about what a respectful way to begin a rebuilding effort in a place like Maui would look like. And I share your perception of that because I was there for a charrette, oh my, 15 years ago, something like that. And uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I had finished my thought and then in my brain came, how do we rebuild in a way that is respectful to this place and the people there? But but in my brain, I'm always like, yeah, I'm also like that it does not just overlay modernity onto them. I feel like the lesson in New Orleans is that we went into a place and we imposed something on them in a way that was not authentic to them and it has not worked as well as it should have. Is that is that fair? Like am I am I am I overstating it? It's a big we because the uh right. the That's fair. being the, the FEMA of that day did precisely that. You know, that they, they had kind of a tunnel vision is to just simply get the infrastructure right and, and getting some buildings back up that were disaster recovery buildings. And and there was no thought of of the uh the economy of the place or the culture of the place or anything like that. So that 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 was very accurate for the uh the big well, business, big government approach. It was well, not how do how do we how do we as Americans look at you know this place in Hawaii, part of our country, and respectfully begin a rebuilding process that is not just imposing, you know, the, the development pattern of California onto what is a very different ancient landscape. You know, one of the big problems is the fact that that when a disaster occurs, time is very much of the essence because you know you have people who how are they going to live, you know, and, and and so it is everything is done at a very a very accelerated pace and there's not really time for that community and the government entities that descend upon them to think through what is the essence of this place and its culture and economy and, and so forth and its infrastructure, meaning the, the urbanism and the architecture. Stuff just gets slapped up out of the closest available model where there might be uh, some production to actually produce a lot of this stuff and, and put it on the ground. And that's a part of what Elsie and Wanda and I are trying to, to work towards is a more resilient way of approaching uh, disasters in in uh, or recoveries of, of multiple sorts, so that it can take into account uh, more things than than what normally gets considered in a in a recovery effort. Now, I will say this, and I, I think that there's similar to the way in which Seaside on its original sixty acres is slightly bigger than that now, uh, with the cover of the back part, but uh, with on its original sixty acres basically changed the world. You know, beginning in in uh, in 1980, a little over 40 years ago now, and and that is that that a great small model has more impact than almost anything else. And so, yeah. like when Michael occurred in Mexico Beach was wiped out, except for Dr. LeBron Lackey's house that was sitting right there at the at the very ocean front and had basically no damage. And people said, "How is that even possible?" It was the same yeah. storm. You know, everything around it was just demolished. In like manner, there was that one house in Hawaii that, that was totally untouched by the storms where, where everything around it was just burnt to cinders. So we need to learn from these tiny little, you might say, clues or hints or 
or snippets of wisdom, whatever you want to call it. But these tiny little things that performed exceptionally better than everything around them into what might be some good ideas about how, how you build back. In my time there, what, 15 years ago, I also saw these uh, little towns that looked like old west towns that were that were put up that that would have had nothing to do with what i would have thought would would have preceded them i actually don't know what the architecture there was like and the urbanism was like you know 150 years ago i've never learned that but what i do know is if you're in a place that is susceptible to wildfires and why in the world that california can't learn this i do not know but in a place susceptible to wildfires your best response is to have tight urbanism built of of masonry or non-flammable things where you don't really have a lot of fuel in the town that the fire can rage around you you know that one house literally all, all its neighbors burnt down and it didn't because it had it presented very little fuel and like for example in key west when it burned 150 years ago Similar to in Hawaii, in Hawaii, everybody just jumped in the ocean. Yeah, there, everybody went down, jumped in their boats, fishing boats or whatever, and went out into the water and watched the city burn. And what they noticed was, is that every time that fire fell on a the roof of a house that, that was wood shingles, the house burned down. When it fell on the roof of a house that was 5 feet metal, then the house did not burn. And so we've got to be able to... to to quickly be able to say, what are the clues today of what works better than everything else that was destroyed? The Key West 5V and then uh, Dr. Lackey's house in, in Mexico Beach and the one house in Hawaii that, that did not burn. We've got to get better at reading those clues quickly. I feel like there is something implied in what you're saying that I don't know if everybody will pick up on, and I'm going to say it in this way, and I want you to push back if I'm not saying this correctly. It would be better if we are going to go and help people rebuild, and I think we should help people rebuild. If we're going to go there with compassion and open hearts and generosity and help people rebuild, it would be better to help someone get into, say, an 800-square-foot house that was fire-resistant in the way you just described then it would be to get into a 2,400 square foot house that would have a higher resale value for an Airbnb and, you know, thus be, you know, more marketable from a mortgage-backed security standpoint. Is that a fair statement? That is absolutely a fair statement. And it goes right to the heart of what we're trying to do with the Katrina Cottage of getting people into something that they can get a foothold on their place again. And, and it's a big Corporate entities don't come in and try to buy out the whole town. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, is that happening right now? And I, I don't know. I have no special insight into that. That absolutely is, is the better approach. But again, that, that that requires being able to quickly evaluate this particular place and not just say we're going to bring in the the, the same standard tired result for, uh, from somewhere else in the U.S. It might be uh, not let like you can necessarily build like, Orlando, Florida, even, and, and have a, a good result, but especially not the, the old West towns. That, which is how, and forgive me for not saying the name of the town. My name gets really uh, mispronounced many, many times. I'm very uh, sensitive about mispronouncing the name of another person or even another town, and I'm not confident yet that I can say the town name correctly. That's why I'm not. But, but my point is, is is the ability to come in and quickly evaluate 
what actually works there and what are the clues we've been given by the disaster. Instead of imposing a kind of a packaged solution, it's hugely important. And I don't use this term a lot, but I I have high regard for the principle. And that is that it requires some humility to take that approach as opposed to saying, yeah, we we know everything. We're just going to drop it all on you. You see what I mean? No, I, exactly what you mean. I, I feel like the standard default is to say, we know here we're going to come in and we have a formula. It's 120% of your pre-assessed home value. We've got a cadre of you know engineers and planners who are going to come in and lay down zoning codes and put a pipe in the ground and create American style cul-de-sacs. And we're just going to hand this back to you as a partially finished product, but one that you're going to struggle to maintain, one that is going to come with you know, now everyone's going to have mortgages and high costs and a different <clears throat> economic situation. And that's not recovery. When I listen to you talk about Jamaica, when I listen to you talk about New Orleans, in my mind, I don't hear you saying, we're going to create prosperity for you the way I define it. But I do hear you saying, we're going to, we're going to walk with you on a path to recovery when I look at what's gone on in Maui and I, I I look at what our response has been thus far, it feels like we are rushing to the gate to provide assistance, but it's assistance on our terms. I'm worried or I'm, I'm afraid that it doesn't look like recovery. Yes. And as a matter of fact, there's another card that gets played very often. And that is to say that We are the recovery experts as if recovery is the same everywhere for every disaster that happened when it emphatically is not. And and so becoming a recovery expert in the town of Maui is a very different thing than being a recovery expert in New Orleans or in Kingston or, you know, in Marsh Harbor, any of these places that have had great disasters. You being an expert in the recovery of the one place does not make you an expert in the recovery of another place, unless they're very similar places in a very similar part of the world. Uh, right. In that case, there may be some lessons that, that translate over. But that's the big corporate model is to say that, yeah, we we do this all around the world. And okay, but importing and using the same tools in one place as a very different other place, how much success do you really have, expect to have with that? Stimazan, the original green. If people want to follow you, I feel like the place that I get you the most is is on Twitter, although you've been less active there lately. What are people who want to follow you? What, where are they going these days? I have the originalgreen.org is my main site, and um, I am rebuilding it from the ground up uh, as I've been working over the last couple of years. So it's a it's kind of a work in progress right now, but I've got a, a ton of content up there. So that that's the more long-term place. And with with Twitter, like for the uh, the last few weeks, for example, I've been uh, really engrossed in some a uh, couple of uh, very exciting work projects that that have kind of taken all my time. And when I go down a rabbit hole like that, you you know you kind of wonder is my is my client looking at what I'm doing on Twitter and saying is he really working hard enough for <laughs> this project? You know, <laughs> so, so oh, uh, yeah. When I disappear for weeks on end, that's because I'm down uh, some uh, rabbit hole on a job that that needs to get taken care of. And but Twitter is where I typically you'll find me putting up new stuff most frequently. 
my username is just Steve Mazan. It's just my name with a, you know, ad at the beginning and, and no space in the middle. Well, Steve Mazan on Twitter is very accessible. So anybody who wants to chat with him, uh, hit him up on there. He's very responsive. When, we, when you're done working on your big project, I, I got the same thing. I've got a book contract that is a little overdue. And every time I post a picture of my kid going to college on Twitter or, or on Facebook, I'm thinking, is someone at, the, at Wiley Publishing looking at me going, what? You have a family? Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to have a family. <laughs> no, not well, not when you have a book overdue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, all right. Thank you, friend. Yes, sir. It's such a delight to be with you and uh, hope to see you soon. Likewise. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.